Amen. So yesterday, uh, Sonda and I had the privilege of um, waking up super early and putting some nice clothes on and hiking up uh, Enchanted Rock. And we were probably, uh, most people saw us thought we were overdressed, but uh, we were there for a really specific reason. I think we were there for a different reason than almost anybody else that was there yesterday. And uh, we were there to witness uh, two friends that we love a lot um, commit their lives to one another in marriage. And so we got to the rock, to this uh, uh, enchanted rock, uh, you know, uh, before, before daylight, and everybody's full of excitement, um, and, uh, and, and we, we climbed to the top, and I mean, I was, uh, even though it was early, I mean, I was a sweaty mess by the time we got to the top. I mean, I, you know, totally, totally uh, sweated out my clothes, and, and yet we get there, and we're kind of taking a breath and look around, and it's just this incredible view where there's like a dome of, of clouds around us and then the sunlight the sunrise is just breaking through those clouds and I look at this beautiful bride and groom that I love and I pronounce them husband and wife while we stand on this hundred something like hundred square mile piece of rock it's an incredible image of the covenant of marriage standing on this huge rock and and uh, as I pronounced them husband and wife uh, this man and this woman, they took on a new status together. Um, they, they, uh, they, they went from being single to being the status of married. Uh, not only did they receive a new status, but a new relationship began. They already were in relationship with one another, but now this is a different kind of relationship. They've entered into a covenant marriage. And, and so it's not a contract where you do this and this, and I don't like it, so now I'm breaking the contract. It's this covenant that says... Our love for one another is going to be an example to the world of, of God's love for humanity, and it's unconditional, and it's never stopping, never ending, never giving up kind of love. So a new status is conveyed on them. A new relationship uh, began, and, and it's a, a hugely important moment in their life, but it's not the end. It's the beginning. I loved that the wedding happened at sunrise and the sun's coming up on their relationship. No offense to anybody that got married at sunset, but it's a great picture of the sun rising on the relationship, not the sun setting, because it's this beginning of something new. And so 17 years ago, Sana and I got married, and it would have been really sad if we stood before the church, stood before God, stood before our friends, and, and, and said our vows, and, and, and then we kind of high-fived each other and left and then never spoke to each other again like we would still have the status of marriage but we wouldn't have the relationship so marriage isn't the the end of something it's the beginning of something and that was just a beautiful picture of that yesterday um, it's the beginning of a life of faithfulness to one another and it's a transformed relationship with everybody else and 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 I share all of that because today we're talking about this idea of God's righteousness and the righteousness that God pronounces on those who know Jesus by faith. And everything that that image of marriage contains that I, that I just shared, um, that, that's, that, that's hint, it, it points towards uh, what God means when he says that you in Christ are righteous. Because he gives you and I, in, 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 when we trust Jesus, he gives us this new status. He declares, just, you know, he declares us to be righteous to be in the right a new relationship with god begins um, uh, a different kind of relationship a relationship of covenant love with him uh, it's, it's the beginning of it's not the, the the finish line 
to, to, to enter into a relationship with God. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of a life together with Him to spend the rest of our lives and the rest of our eternity coming to know Him more and more and more deeply and work out what it means that He's been faithful to us and, and, and called us. And, and, it, and it leads to a transformed relationship with ourselves and with everyone else. And so if we kind of hold that wedding imagery, that covenant marriage imagery in mind, that might help us as we read some big church-sounding words in this passage, kind of hold together what Paul means, this kind of the beautiful picture that he's painting for us uh, when he says that, that you can be uh, justified, made righteous, made right with God by faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so let's just kind of track over some of the ground we've already plowed. A couple weeks ago, we were in Romans 1, and we read Paul say, I'm not ashamed, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed, he wrote, of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the message that this crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the universe. I'm not ashamed of that message because that message, he says, is the power of God for salvation. It's the raw power of God that changes lives that saves, that rescues, that delivers. It delivers individuals, but not just individuals, but is going to deliver this entire universe from its brokenness. And so kind of that, that first word out of the gate to us is that the gospel isn't some icing we put on the cake of our lives. It's not just something that we kind of drizzle on top of what we're doing. It's dynamite, and it, and it, and it reorients our entire lives, and it shakes up our lives. And if, and if we've encountered the gospel and we've stayed the same, maybe we haven't really encountered the gospel. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then in verse 17, he says, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And, 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 and somehow he's saying the gospel reveals that God is who he says he is. Righteousness is this character, it's this core characteristic of God. Righteousness is this core characteristic of God that means he is who he says he is. He does what he says he will do. Another way to, say, to talk about God's righteousness is to say that he's faithful to do what he says. Um, and so, and so when, when Paul talks about God's righteousness... He's talking about God being who he says he is. And when he says that God uh, calls us righteous, part of what he's saying is that God's calling us uh, who he says we are, not who anybody else says we are. And so he said in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Verse 17, somehow the gospel reveals that God's righteous. Somehow the gospel reveals that, that God is faithful, that God's who he says he is. Um, but then he goes into beginning in verse 18 and the next couple of chapters, all of the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, Paul uh, kind of lays it on us and shows us how sinful humanity has become. He talks about this sin sickness that has infected the human race and every sin individually and how we've kind of become broken to the core. He, he says that whether we come from a Jewish background, which was his background, or we come from a non-Jewish background, he lays out the case in Romans 1 and 2 that all humanity is broken. All humanity falls short of God's glory. All humanity is messed up. Um, all humanity deserves God's judgment. All humanity deserves God's wrath. He makes this case that um, all humanity has worshipped something that's not really God. We've exchanged God's glory for some lesser kind of idols and our twisted worship has led to twisted lives and we've become ensnared in sin. And so he kind of lays all that out in, in Romans 1 and 2 and, 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 and at the end of Romans 2 he might be saying, well, hold on. If he's saying that heathen people are messed up and broken and if he's saying that religious people are messed up and broken, what is our hope? 
Like, what chance does anybody have? And that's where he's going to go in Romans chapter 3, where we are today. He's going to point us to the faithfulness of Jesus. Even though all humanity, all Jew, all Gentile, every human has failed to be faithful, Paul's going to steer us to the one person who has been faithful, and that's Jesus. And, and our, our, our message today is that because Jesus is faithful, your life can be built on a firm foundation. Because Jesus is faithful, you can build your life on a firm foundation. So let's dive into Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? All right, so this would be, if, if you've read Romans 1 and 2, and especially if you're a Jewish person in the first century, that would kind of be the natural question to ask. If, Paul, if you're saying all people, Jews and Gentiles, are all equally messed up, then what is the advantage, uh, what's the benefit of being, of being, Jew, of, of being Jewish? Uh, and, and, and Paul says, hey, there's tons of advantage. Much in every way, verse 2, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when I hear that word oracle, I think of the matrix. I don't know about you, but that, that word oracle is the word, it's, it's another way of saying the, the word of God or the story of God, the law of God. Um, they, they were entrusted with a special relationship with God. And so Paul's saying, hey, man, Jews have a lot of advantage. His, he's talking about his own people here. He says, we have a lot of advantage because we were trusted with God's word. We were trusted with God's mission. And that word entrusted in verse 2 is really important. If we're going to understand what Paul's saying here, we need to understand that word entrusted. To begin with, he says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now Paul's going to make a lot of plays on the word faith. Um, entrusted is, is in, in the Greek, it's the same word, root word for faith. God puts this faith in the Jewish people. He enfaiths or he entrusts them to do this mission. What was the mission? Well, we go back to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, uh, the world has gone, uh, you know, uh, in a handbasket, right? And, uh, and, and everything's messed up. Sin has infected everything humans have touched. God starts over with the best person on earth, Noah, in, in, in Genesis 6. And by the time Noah's story's over, he's drunk and naked. Man, people are messed up, okay? And so God's answer to human sin, God's answer to all this evil Remember, we always ask, what's God doing about all this stuff that's messed up? Well, here was God's answer. He calls Abraham, and he says, hey, Abraham, I'm calling you, and I'm going to make a people out of you. I know you're old. I know you don't have a family, but I'm going to make a people out of you. You're going to be more numerous than all the stars in the sky and all the sand on the seashore. You're going to bless the nations. You're going to shine as a light to the nations. People are going to look to you and say, wow, what a great God Abraham and his people must have, and the whole nations are going to be pointed to you. So Abraham and his people were given a mission. But they failed to live out that mission. It, 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 they forgot that it was about blessing the nations. They forgot it was about showing everybody else who God was. They forgot that God wanted to do in the whole nations what he was doing with them. And so they failed to live out the mission that they were entrusted with. And so the question is, well, so is God just going to throw away his plan uh, his promise that he made to Abraham? Is he, is he just scrapping this thing and saying, okay, I'm going to do a plan B over here with the church? If so, um, is God going to get tired of me one day and just scrap me and, and walk away from me? Can God be trusted? Underneath the question of what's the advantage of being a Jew, I mean, you probably didn't wake up this morning and say, I wonder what the advantage of being a Jew is. Or you probably didn't wake up this morning and say, what, I wonder what the advantage of being a Christian is. But you know what question might be lurking around in your mind today? Can I trust God? Is God trustworthy? Is God going to double cross me? Is God going to tell me one thing and then do something else? Because have you noticed that humans have a faithfulness problem? 
Have you picked up on this? We've we got a problem being faithful to our marriages. We've got a problem being faithful to our jobs. We've got a problem being faithful to our church. We've got a problem being faithful um, to the commitments that we make to ourselves, the commitments we make to one another. And so we naturally wonder, man, is, does God have a faithfulness problem too? And the question that Paul's driving at in this chapter is, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Is God faithful? Is God reliable? And Paul's going to answer that question, spoiler alert, by pointing, pointing us to the lengths that Jesus is willing to go to fulfill the covenant, to fulfill the promise, to fulfill the promise made to Abram. The lengths that Jesus is willing to go to rescue you. He's going to point us to the faithfulness of Jesus all the way to the cross and beyond the cross to the resurrection. And so when we ask that question, can I trust God? Paul's answer is, look at the cross. Look at Jesus dead and crucified and risen. And that's our answer, whether we can trust God or not. So because Jesus is faithful, you can build your life on a firm foundation. So first question, what's the advantage of the Jewish people? In other words, is God trustworthy? Paul says, hey, they were, there's, there's this great advantage because he says, my people were entrusted with a mission. God's plan all along from the beginning was to do in the nations what he did for Israel. God's plan from the beginning was to shine a light through Israel for the nations. Um, but just like Adam failed in his commission to take the Garden of Eden and spread it, Adam, uh, Abram's family failed. And that's the next point Paul makes. Abram's family was unfaithful to the mission. Abram's family ended up being infected with the same disease they were trying to cure. Abram's family ended up being just as messed up as everybody else. So how does God respond to that? Does he throw them in the trash and start over? Or does he somehow find a way to be faithful to what he always planned to do? Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. In other words... Uh, if some people are unfaithful, does that mean that God's, uh, that God's not faithful? He says, no, let God be found true, even though everyone were a liar. He quotes that you may be justified in your words from the Old Testament, prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So Paul, in verses 3 and 5, parallels these words, faithfulness and righteousness unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. And that kind of helps us get, catch a sense of what does Paul mean when he uses this big word, righteousness? Fundamentally, he's talking about God's faithfulness to do what he says, to, to, to be who he says. And so, fundamentally, Israel's failure is that they're unfaithful to the mission that God gave them. What was the mission? To be the light to the nations. They were unfaithful of that. Um, but yet, Paul is saying here that somehow, even though God's own people were not faithful, God remained faithful because he loves them with this special kind of love. We used the word covenant earlier. God's love for us is not a contract where as soon as we step out of the lines, he's done with us, he abandons us. God's love for us, God's love for his people is a covenant love. And there's a special word in the Old Testament called hesed in the Hebrew. It's translated as covenant faithfulness. In the New Testament, that word's translated as grace. And if you read this, this really cool children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones translates that idea of covenant faithfulness this way. She calls it God's 
never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And even though Paul is using a lot of big terms in Romans 3, and it's kind of a convoluted argument for us to follow, what we need to keep in mind is that what he's appealing to is God's covenant love. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And he's saying that even though God's own people failed miserably, you ever look at your track record of being faithful and say, Man, I really got it together. Or do you look at your track record of being faithful and say, man, I need help, you know? Even though God's people failed miserably, God has remained faithful. He doesn't throw Abram's family in the trash and say, I'm done with them. No, he does through Christ what Abram's family was always intended to do, but failed to do. He shines as a light to the nations. Um, He blesses the nations. He creates a new family united by faith in Christ. So God's righteousness, this big idea in this passage, means that God's faithful even when we're not. God's righteousness means that God is faithful even when we're not, that God can be trusted even when we can't be trusted. God can be. So uh, he goes on to say in verse 9, What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So you might read this and say, Paul is like, does he have multiple personalities? What's going on with him? He just said Jews have an advantage because they were entrusted with a mission. Now he says they're not any better off. And really what Paul's getting at is, because they were faithful, their advantage turned out to be a disadvantage because they started the race like 20 steps ahead, but still didn't finish the race. They, they, they had this great advantage in receiving God's word and God's uh, presence and God's story, and yet they still failed. So they, they, they had an advantage, but they're not better off because he says, I've already shown you both Jew and Gentile are all under sin. Both Jew and Gentile are sinful. Sin for Paul isn't this idea of just breaking the rules. Sin for Paul is to be under this force of evil. So like even if I really, really love my sin and like I feed it and I nurture it and I show it to my friends and I take it out for walks and and I'm really, really nice to it, even if I love my sin, Paul's saying it's still sin. And it's like, like if you have a pet rattlesnake, like it will still bite you, okay? It's still what it is. And even if you like sleep with it and like cuddle with it at night, it's still going to hurt you as soon as it can. And that's what sin is. It's this, it's this force of evil. And, and, and so he, he, he thinks of sin as like Pharaoh in Egypt. How Pharaoh and the Egyptians had the people of Israel in bondage. And, and he, he, he's going to list all these Old Testament verses uh, in the next few verses. Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not even one. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, they're swift to shed blood. He's talking about fallen humanity, whether they're Jew or Gentile. So on one level, what Paul's hammering home to us is that whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, everybody's broken by sin. But on another level, what Paul's doing is he's addressing an issue that was going on in the church at Rome. So the... uh, the, the, the Jewish Christians had gotten kicked out of Rome by the emperor, and they were gone a few years. And then they get, they get to come back to Rome, and they come back to church, and suddenly everything's changed. You ever find that in church that, you know, 
a few years pass and everything changes and you feel like maybe what happened here. And suddenly, when they left Rome, like it had been a Jewish, they had been doing church the Jewish way, and now they come back and they're doing it the, the Roman way, the Gentile way. And they got, they got a Roman way of greeting you. They got a Roman way of, of singing songs. They're using Roman instruments. They got Roman donuts and everything's changed. Okay, what's going on? Not the donuts too, right? And, 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 and so... Paul, rather than getting into the specifics of this friction between these ethnic groups in church, what Paul does is he takes the bull by the horns, he addresses it head on by saying, let me remind you that you're both sinners. He takes the Jew by the collar, and he takes the Gentile Christian by the collar, and he says, hey, you're both messed up. It's kind of like in marriage counseling where the husband says it's her fault, she says it's his fault, and the counselor says, I think you're both crazy. Paul says, hey, you're both sinful. So when, when, when you have that problem at work and you just know that you're right, does it help you to remind yourself that, hey, I'm a sinner too? When, 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 when you're about to fire off that really cute Facebook comment and just torch your neighbor, you know, um, does it help to stop a minute and say, wait a minute, I'm a sinner too. Whatever you don't have in common with somebody, you could be different ethnicities, you could be from different countries, uh, you could have different political orientations, you could have different sexual orientations, you could be totally different. But you know one thing you have in common? You're sinners. Another thing you have in common, you're created in God's image. And that, if nothing else, gives us a lot of empathy. So before we go to straighten somebody out, before we're convinced of our righteousness, we can remember Paul taking us by the collar and saying, you're just as messed up as that guy over there. And that can give us empathy. That can give us humility. Let me get back to the notes. All right. So he lays out all this, all these Old Testament scriptures, that show us that sin is a few things. Sin is perverted. Even if we love our sin and we're crazy about our sin and we don't think it's sin, sin's perverted. It twists us. Sin is persistent. Have you found that sin is persistent in your life? That when you stomp it out in one area, it crops up in another area? Sin is persistent. And last, sin is pervasive. Sin seems to infect everything that we do. Sin even infects the good things that we do. And so, uh, and so the, we have to acknowledge that the, the, the sickness of sin has gone deeper than we thought. And so the cure is a more radical cure than we thought. For Paul, again, sin isn't just breaking the rules. It's this force that holds people in bondage. I'm going to quote the, the, the TV miniseries Chernobyl again. I quoted it last week. It's going to be the last time I, I, I say anything about Chernobyl for a while. But it's, again, it's this miniseries about this nuclear event uh, in the Soviet Union back in 1986. And there's this scientist, Dr. Legasov, who uh, Logan and Rebecca Greathouse told me about it. It was amazing. I'll listen to all the recommendations from now on. But uh, Dr. Uh, Le uh, Legasov um, investigates why did this nuclear reactor blow up, and he finds that the Soviet Union had hidden 
facts, had hidden truth, and, 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 and had kept uh, scientists in the dark about other disasters that had happened. And there were people that knew this could happen and were trying to say, hey, we're heading for disaster, but nobody would listen to them. And, and so at this hearing that they're having, uh, towards the end of this, of this process, uh, Dr. Legasov is kind of supposed to stand up and just kind of pin the blame on these three or four lower-level guys. And what he ends up doing is saying, hey, this problem is way worse and it goes way further than we thought. He said, and, and, and he's told, when he starts acting like the Soviet Union might have a, 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 some accountability in this, they tell him, you're standing on dangerous ground. He says, I've already trod dangerous ground. We're on dangerous ground right now. He says, because of our secrets and our lies, they're practically what define us. When the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is even there, but it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, the debt is paid. That is how an RBMK reactor core explodes. Lies. Now, we can hear Legasov and say, that's right, Soviet Union, man, give it to them. Or we can hear an indictment on all of humanity. We're offended by the truth, and so we lie, and we cover, and we lie, and we lie, and we lie until our race our, our, uh, until our, the, the human race, until our life is at the point of it's about to blow up. And Legasov says somebody is going to pay that debt. And what Paul wants us to see in this passage is that when your life was this nuclear reactor exploding, Jesus Christ threw himself on it. Jesus absorbed Jesus paid the debt. And if we think that sin is just kind of I break a rule every now and then, we're not really going to be that impressed by what Jesus has done. But if we understand that sin is something that has infected me and all of humanity to the core, then suddenly the work of Jesus on the cross becomes much more amazing. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now Paul's saying a lot there, but one thing he's saying is he's saying that if I look at God's law and I point to it and say, hey, I'm doing a really good job of keeping this. I don't need Jesus, like I'm already really good. He says, hold on. Um, how are you really doing, like with the Ten Commandments? Like you really don't ever worship anything that's not God? Okay, you didn't murder anybody, but did you think about murdering your coworker last week? Uh, you haven't had an affair, but did your, your eye wonder? Um, did you steal glory and honor that belonged to your coworker or that belonged to God? But beyond that, Paul's saying that if I point to like the law as, my, as, as the proof that I'm doing... Now, now, this is what Paul would have done a few years before his encounter with Jesus. He would have said, man, I keep the rules. I'm right. I vote right. I go to church right. Man, uh, I have it going on. Look at me. I, I'm one of the good guys, right? But Paul is saying that if we point to the law as like our witness that we're doing good, that's like if Jeff Myers gives you a speeding ticket, Jimmy Bass gives you a speeding ticket, and, uh, and you go to court to fight your ticket and say, uh, Judge, I'd like to bring in my witness, Jimmy Bass. 
and uh, Jimmy comes in, and you know, Kyle walks in, and, 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 and uh, like, yeah, I gave him the ticket. He definitely deserves to have, to, to, he definitely deserves to pay, and he needs to pay double because he wasted my time. And so uh, the law is what we look at, and it doesn't tell us, man, you're awesome. We look at the law, and we can't live up to that standard, okay? And so Paul's saying, man, if our righteousness is, ba- is based in keeping the rules, we're going to fail. And so religion always says, and we've even tried to pervert Christianity into this, but religion always says, get right and then you'll be accepted. Act right and then you'll be accepted. But the gospel is, let God accept you and then you're going to live right. Religion says, change and then you're going to be accepted. The gospel says, let God accept you, and you're going to change. Let Christ accept you, and you will be changed. Because Jesus is faithful, you can live, build your life on a firm foundation. Let's wrap this up. Verse 21, most important section here. But now, Paul says, but now. These are really important words, and Paul's saying that... Man, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Man, we hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus so much that we've forgotten what a big deal it is. Like, we've heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus so much that we forgot that it changed the world. It changed the universe. And Paul says, but now, like, there's a new reality. The righteousness of God has been manifested. God has shown himself faithful. How, he says, apart from the law. But the gospel doesn't just parachute in out of nowhere. The law and the prophets do bear witness to it. The law and the prophets have always pointed to Jesus. The law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, have always pointed forward to the fulfillment of Jesus. Jesus is where the Old Testament had always been pointing. Jesus is not God's plan B. Jesus is not some kind of thing that God does because he wads Abraham's family up and throws them away and rejects them. Jesus is where this thing has been going all along. Jesus demonstrates that God is faithful. Jesus demonstrates that God can be trusted. Jesus demonstrates that God's who he says he is. Um, He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Um, Now, this is, a lot of ink has has been spilled over this passage as well. But this word faith, again, is key throughout this this chapter and the next chapter as well. Faith is going to be our word next week. But faith in the Greek can be translated as faith or faithfulness. And really both ideas are there at the same time. And so when Paul says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, that could also be translated the righteousness of Jesus Christ through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And remember, all the way through this passage, Paul's point has been that our faithfulness doesn't get us anywhere but God's faithfulness is what counts. And so the sense here is God has revealed that he's who he says he is by the faithfulness of Jesus to do what only he could do. And we get justified, we get set right, we get new status with God, we become God's covenant people, part of God's covenant family, as we place our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For Paul, for the New Testament, what everything comes down to isn't how faithful I am to keep the rules. 
what everything hinges on is how faithful Jesus is all the way to the cross, through the cross, through the resurrection for all who believe. Our badge as Christians isn't I vote this way or I go to this church or I keep the rules. Our badge is I have trusted in faith Jesus Christ's faithfulness. My faithfulness, Matt's faithfulness, along with all of humanity, is a proven failure. But the crazy thing is, the less I trust in my faithfulness, and the more I trust in his faithfulness, the more faithful I actually become. The more I trust in my own faithfulness, the less faithful I am. The more I trust in his faithfulness, the more faithful I become. So how does the gospel reveals that, reveal that God's righteous? How does the gospel reveal God's faithfulness? Well, Jesus comes and he does what Abraham couldn't do, what David couldn't do, what no Israelite could do. He fulfills the mission, shines the light for all the world, creates one family. He goes on to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He reiterates that again. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified is to be declared righteous by God. So we get that righteous status by grace. It's not that the judge suddenly says, oh, Will Donovan, oh, no, you actually are really awesome. You're in. He says, Will Donovan, um, in your place condemned, Jesus stood. You're made right because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus has been faithful, all right? He says this is by grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption is a slave market word. It's the word for a slave being purchased back. Here we are, slaves to sin. And Jesus comes and buys us back. He says, God put Jesus forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation is a big word. It means atoning sacrifice. It was the word for the altar and the temple where the sacrifice was poured. And Paul's saying that Jesus is not only the place where we find mercy, but he himself is the sacrifice. He's the one who laid his life, his life down. We're going to sing in a few minutes William Cooper's song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And Cooper lived in the 1700s and he struggled with depression and his, all of his siblings died. Then his mom died when he was six years old and he was left with his dad and he had this rough relationship with his dad. He goes to boarding school and he gets bullied. I mean, anybody else saying, hey, my week's not starting to sound quite as bad? Like, he had it rough. And then his dad really is pushing him to be a lawyer and he goes to law school. He's getting ready to... Um, He's getting ready to uh, take the bar exam and he's so stressed and anxious about it. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And then his girlfriend breaks up with him. This is sounding like, I mean, he should have been a country music singer, right? This is bad. And so what Cooper does is he, he takes his Bible and he throws it away and he tries to end his life through suicide. Friends encourage him and he, and he goes to a, a mental asylum. And the psychiatrist there was a Christian and, 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 and Cooper begins reading the Bible and he reads this passage, Romans chapter 3, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice through his blood. Like we don't get what all that means, right? There's a lot of words in here. We read it and we're just like, what's going on? But this truth can, can pierce your heart. It pierced William Cooper's heart. And he wrote these words years later when he was fighting depression again. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners are plunged beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. Wow. This passage, this truth has changed so many people's lives. 
The gospel that Jesus died and rose and is the Lord of the universe reveals that God is righteous because it reveals that God can be trusted to do what he says. And if you wonder, can I trust God for this? All you have to do is remind yourself of the cross and the cross is the answer of how far God will go to fulfill his plan. Now last week, we talked about some pretty uh, sensitive stuff and I'm going to go there again uh, this week. Um, uh, I know I'm treading on some holy ground here, but I've got behind me um, two pictures. One is a picture of the real thing and one is the picture of a sad, uh, sad, sad substitute. Okay? Don't come to me later and say, oh, I love Dr. Thunder, I'm offended, I don't want to hear it, okay? One of these is the real thing, and one of these is a sad substitute. And justification, to kind of use maybe a silly example, is the idea of God taking the Dr. Pepper label off and putting the Dr. Pepper label onto the Dr. Thunder. Now, if I swap labels, is anything going to change inside? If I say, you know what, I think I like Dr. Pepper, I'm going to put this Dr. Pepper label on the Dr. Thunder, then nothing changes inside. Somebody comes along expecting Dr. Pepper, they take what they hope is going to be a refreshing drink, and they spew that stuff out like vomit, okay? And they're very unhappy. But if God, but if God changes the label, The God who said, let there be light and there was light. Like if God puts the Dr. Pepper label and says, this is Dr. Pepper, guess what happens? What's inside the container is transformed. There's a lot of us that have changed our label because we thought, you know, going to heaven sounds better than going to hell. I'd rather, you know, be a Christian than not be a Christian, I guess. But the question you got to ask is, did you just change your label externally? Or is God changing what's inside the container? Paul talked about judgment day in Romans 2. There's coming a day when we're going to stand before God and the the lid's going to be open. And what's inside of us is going to be poured out. And what's going to be in there? Is it going to be the real thing? Or is it going to be some kind of substitute? If God changed your label and said, you are righteous. And you said by faith, yes, Lord, may it be. Then what's inside you will change. And if what's inside of you is not changing, if what's inside of you is not changing, then you got a problem. Okay, friends? That doesn't mean you got to be perfect, because I'm sure not. But it's what's inside of you changing based on the declaration that God has made? Or did you just swap your own label? If God swapped your label, what's inside is going to change too? And the final judgment is about seeing what's actually inside. So in the meantime, as the band's coming up, I'd like for us to think about what difference does justification make in Paul's life? What difference does it make in Paul's life that God looked at him and said, I declare you to be righteous. Remember, Paul came riding in on his horse, and he was going to take a bunch of Christians and throw them in jail, and he was proud, and he, and he justified everything that he did. See, if I'm 
justifying my actions, whatever they are, then I'm refusing to be justified by Christ. We've got to stop trying to prove how right we are and start placing our trust in how right Jesus is. Stop trying to prove how right you are and start trusting in how right Jesus is. Paul, before he met Christ, was convinced that he was right and he was dead wrong. And he met the risen Christ, he falls down, and his life after that is forever changed. He writes in Philippians chapter 3 these words. Philippians chapter 3. He writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. I was born in the church nursery. I never missed a son. I have it all going on. I was in Awanas, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Because Paul encountered Christ, and because Paul was pronounced righteous by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and because Paul said, yes, I trust you, Lord, what played out in his life was that he had, for one, freedom from shame. You know, Paul could have spent the rest of his life hanging his head for the terrible things that he did, but God set him free from being a prisoner to his shame. Is God doing that for you? Are you allowing God to do that for you? Paul experienced, because of his justification, an ongoing recognition of his need. He wrote in 2 Corinthians, he says, his grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. He has the sense that I need Christ today more than ever. Do you, do you know that? Because Paul's justified by faith, he, he, he has a humility that comes over him. That he can listen and he can hear and he can change. Paul has a mission. Man, he goes all over town. Instead of throwing Christians in jail, he goes all over town tearing down any wall he finds that makes it hard for any outsider to come to know Christ. Tearing down any wall that separates people from each other. He has a mission. Because Paul has been justified by grace through faith, he's come to believe that the gospel is more important than anything else. Like J.D. Greer says, the gospel is above politics, above culture, above my preferences. The gospel is more important than my ethnicity. The gospel is more important than my nationality. If I've truly encountered Christ, the gospel becomes more important than anything 